Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996, and you can read all of them at my website, Quipster.net. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the link to my other podcast that covers brand new movies that are out in theaters, streaming services, VOD, wherever you get your new films. You can check that out at Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of a three-part series, looking at films of the 1980s in which the main character can talk to animals. Last episode we covered Sheena, and this week we're going to go to another film that features prominently Tanya Roberts in one of the lead roles, although she is not the star. It is 1982's The Beastmaster. The Beastmaster is a PG-rated film. It does have violence and nudity. It would probably be a very strong PG-13 if it were released today. The runtime is an hour and 58 minutes. Mark Singer is the main star, with supporting roles going to Tanya Roberts, Rip Torn, John Amos, and Josh Milred. The director is Don Coscarelli, who also writes the screenplay along with Paul Pepperman. Now, the idea for The Beastmaster occurred to Don Coscarelli on this long plane ride that he had home after he had been promoting his previous film called Phantasm when he was in Australia. He recalled reading a science fiction book when he was in the sixth grade. It was by an author named Andre Norton, and it was called The Beastmaster. It was first published in 1959, and during his reminiscences, he thought it would be something that would make for a great movie. And on that flight, Don Coscarelli began to write down the first outline for what would eventually become his film version of The Beastmaster. Now, when he returned to the United States, Coscarelli coordinated with his former college roommate and his creative partner named Paul Pepperman. They were going to flesh out a screenplay together. They both reread the book, but Coscarelli found that what he remembered liking when he was a kid was not really as good to read when he was an adult. He did like the main character, who was this Navajo who had the power to control animals, but he felt that the story itself really did not capitalize enough on that character. So they bought the rights to Norton's book, and they used the title and its main character, and they came up with a tale that was more to their liking. And because the film so little resembles the book, Andre Norton, a.k.a. Alice Norton, requested not to be credited in their film. Now, to limit the budget, the setting would be thousands of years in Earth's past instead of the book's setting of the interplanetary future. They extensively researched primitive cultures for ideas and what elements that they were going to include to make their setting realistic to the viewer. They followed this formula of a lone wolf samurai film to try to make this sword and sandal adventure very much like the Steve Reeves films that Don Coscarelli grew up watching, except he was going to give it more of a live action Disney sensibility. Now, the main storyline follows the hero named Dar. Dar is the son of a king who gets snatched away from his mother's womb by a witch under the employ of the evil magician named Maox. Maox had been prophesied to be killed by the son of a king, to which he takes to slaughtering all of the young'uns he can. The intended infanticide is thwarted by a goodly peasant who raises Dar as his own son and harnesses the boy's skill in fighting and farming. Dar soon discovers this uncanny ability to communicate telepathically with whatever animals that reside nearby. After this, Dar's village gets decimated by the evil forces known as the Jun Horde, in cahoots with Maox. 
Out for revenge, Dar enlists some newfound animal friends in the form of a panther, an eagle, and two ferret thieves to bring down Mayox before he slaughters any more innocent children. Also joining Dar is a slave girl named Kiri, a valiant warrior named Seth, and the son of the imprisoned king, Tal. Much more to the story than that, but I won't go into any elaborate spoilers. Now, you would think that the $40 million in international success for the very low budget, $500,000 budget for Phantasm would attract offers from major studios, but Coscarelli and Peppermint, all they received in the interim were low-budget movies from no-name studios, more of the same, basically. If the Beastmaster was ever going to get made, they were going to have to learn how to hustle in Hollywood, which for guys in their 20s with no real connections seemed very daunting at the time. Their first pitch that they made was with Walt Disney Productions. And Disney, they were undergoing recent financial difficulties. They really could not risk funding a pricey sword and sorcery film, so they passed. MGM also passed, as did, surprisingly, AFCO Embassy, who had made a lot of money with Coscarelli's Phantasm. AFCO feared that the budget for the Beastmaster was going to escalate because there were a lot of giant sets and animal stunts that were required to make it happen. Now, contemplating turning the Beastmaster into a low-budget indie flick, they soon were approached by a man named Silvio Tabit. Tabit, at that time, was a Lebanese entrepreneur who produced hundreds of commercials internationally all throughout the 1970s. He had recently come to the United States with about $5 million of seed money, and he started Leisure Investment Company to finance and distribute films from Hollywood. Tabit also produced films. He ran a studio. He had a production distribution company in Europe and in the Middle East. Dino De Laurentiis, he was making Conan the Barbarian, and Tabit wanted to ride the wave of sword and sorcery popularity. He had read the Beastmaster script, and he felt that the PG rating would find an audience that the R-rated Conan the Barbarian would not. They came to an agreement. Coscarelli could make his film, and Tabit would arrange distribution around the world for it. However, the compromises did not sit so well with Coscarelli. Tabit monitored his director persistently using surrogates, and Tabit would also have creative control and the final cut right. With the help of private investment companies and loans secured from European financial institutions, Tabit received funding in 1980 for about $25 million to produce four films, and the first was going to be The Beastmaster. They scouted locations in Mexico, but the funding really did not pan out to take that route. Coscarelli decided that they should make the film closer to home, in the desert area around Los Angeles, California. There were additional scenes that they could shoot in Valley of Fire State Park in Nevada and in parts of Arizona. An abandoned toy company warehouse 15 miles outside of Hollywood was procured and redesigned to supply the production offices as well as the sets, the interior space that they needed to do indoor shoots. Nikita Natz was brought in to handle the Beastmaster's richly detailed conceptual designs, bringing to life the eerie nature of the bird warriors, the zombie-like death guards, and the dastardly appearance of the Jun priests and witches. They brought in production designer Conrad Angone to see what could be achieved with a limited budget, concocting all kinds of new weapons and props for this lost era of civilization. Angone really was a student of archaeology and of ancient civilizations. He drew from a lot of influences. American Indian, Aztec, Etruscan, and many other eras to design this unique world of the Beastmaster. Storyboarding was very useful in getting the look and the flow of the film right, but changes did need to be made 
due to the style of its eventual cinematographer, John Alcott, who was the person who worked very famously with Stanley Kubrick. He earned an Oscar for Barry Lyndon just a few years before, and then he went on to shoot The Shining. Alcott here took the gig because he was interested in breaking into American productions. He wanted to use this as the opportunity to relocate his family and get his new start in Hollywood. Alcott preferred natural lighting. He wanted torches and candles and the sun outside to capture this ancient world, not the kind of artificial lighting that usually lights many Hollywood productions. Alcott was really beneficial for a young Coscarelli. He provided a master class in film photography and lighting that Coscarelli would employ in all of his films henceforth. Now, Coscarelli here, he secured the services of this top-notch animal trainer that could supply the needed animal actors, including a black leopard. But for financial reasons, Tabot insisted that they go with the person that he found instead, a man named Boonar, who's an animal trainer from Ralph Helfer's Gentle Jungle, which was headquartered in Colton in California. Nar thought that they should use a tiger because tigers were easier to train than leopards, and he had four tigers available for their use, which he would dye their fur black, and they would pass as panthers. The ferret pair, Podo and Kodo, they utilized about 20 to 25 ferrets, each possessing certain skills. Some of them jumped, some of them carried items, some of them chewed on ropes. They really weren't particularly trainable, but some of them did things better than others. The animal supplier also provided three bears and a wedge-tail eagle for their use. Now, after going through hundreds of resumes, meeting with interested actors all over, Mark Singer was suggested to Coscarelli by the casting director as a potential possibility. Coscarelli screened a recent performance by Singer of William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew that he had made for PBS. He was pleased to find that Mark Singer had charisma. He had a lot of acting ability and an amazing physique. He would be the perfect dar. So they sent Singer the script and he agreed to do it and he would spend the first few weeks getting familiar with the animal actors before the shoot. Singer also had experience fencing, which made his sword work fall into place in the absence of having a sword fight choreographer, and he loved to do whatever stunts he could, which also helped the shoot stay on schedule. Mark Singer, you know, he kind of looks like a macho Mark Hamill, and he gave the part his all. He bulked up to an incredible degree to make Dar the live but very resourceful brute appearance that he needs. By the way, Coscarelli named Dar after his best friend in life when he was a young boy named Darwin. Coscarelli had Klaus Kinski in mind for the Mayox role, but Kinski cost $5,000 more than Tabit would fund. You would think that $5,000 was not a big deal to cover, but Tabit thought it was not worth the extra money, so Rip Torn was Coscarelli's second choice. Torn really didn't have any rehearsal time for his part. He arrived the day before they started shooting film, and he had a very small work window to work with, and that limited his availability for any reshoots down the road. Now, to immediately get into the role, Torn played Mayox as a human version of a turkey vulture. He had the makeup department even give him a hook nose to resemble a beak. And that prosthetic nose was very difficult for him to work with. It did melt from some of the heat and it fell off at inopportune times. But Torrance's performance is gloriously over the top. Just a mustache twirl shy of Boo Hiss Bella Dramatics, which may cut either way depending on your tolerance for over the top acting. This is the kind of movie you can kind of get away with that, though. Now, for Kiri, Coscarelli really wanted this 18-year-old unknown that came into audition named Demi Moore. Yes, that one, who impressed them after several readings. And Tabit, he ended up nixing Moore. He claimed that she could not act, plus her voice was too deep and gravelly for the microphones to pick up adequately. 
But Tabbitt grew smitten with another woman who came into audition, former Charlie's Angels star Tanya Roberts. Tabbitt insisted that Coscarelli cast her instead. Coscarelli found Roberts very nice and very easy to work with. She was willing to do whatever it took for the part, including performing some of the stunts. And Roberts is beautiful. However, she lacked a compelling character to inhabit, and she ends up getting memorable only as eye candy. Now, in early strips, Kiri, which was then called Lara, had been intended to die in the finale, but Tabbitt insisted that she survive. He really liked Roberts, and if there were any further movies down the road, he wanted to use her if possible. One actor that came in who was also an unknown, Coscarelli ended up passing on, was Lawrence Turoad, a.k.a. Mr. T. He auditioned for the role of Seth, and Coscarelli found him adequate for the part. He was a very nice guy, despite his intimidating appearance, but he felt that he really needed an actor with more gravitas and the semblance of wisdom, and he preferred John Amos, who he had admired greatly for many years. Coscarelli never regretted choosing Amos, but he does admit that the marketability for the Beastmaster would have probably skyrocketed after Mr. T's star-making turn a few months before in Rocky III. Nevertheless, John Amos did have a very good sense of humor, and he made working on the set very fun for everyone around him. For the production, a 70-foot pyramid was erected around this small hill and a nearby town on stilts that was intended to be burned to the ground. They rented a 3,000-acre parcel in Simi Valley that was owned by the Union Oil Company. The winter shoot approached freezing levels. It was unbearably cold for the actors, especially because they were only wearing loincloths for a good part of it, and retakes proved very common. The actors shivered uncontrollably at times, especially during the introductory nude waterfall scene introducing Kiri. Maybe not coincidentally, Simi happens to be the Chumash Indian word for the clouds that are formed by the strong winds that are in that area. And the crew found out just how strong those winds were. The gusts often leveled the sets to the ground, and they had to rebuild them constantly. Now, a late hire to the film, makeup effects man Bill Munns. He had experience with tight schedules and low-budget films like The Boogans and Swamp Thing, and Munns dove in immediately because the other makeup talent that they had hired could not produce despite expending a very large chunk of the makeup budget to that date. Munns created a lot of nifty inventions. He had the, the finger ring that flips open to reveal a moving eyeball. He also created the eerie seven-foot-tall bird warriors using tall actors that were provided by a local talent agency. But because of limited time, he only had four full body suits available for the shoot, so the other actors only wore heads while draping their wings over their bodies. Because of the lack of time, some of the makeup work does end up getting a bit iffy. Mayox's hook nose does make him look more like uh, the Muppet's Gonzo than he does a human, and he inexplicably does sport a tin grin. The old age makeup provided to the witches also can look unconvincing in the right light. The score here by Lee Holdridge is quite solid, and many fans have loved that score over the years. But for me, there are times when I am recalling the theme song to the old Battlestar Galactica TV show. There are definitely some of the same patterns to the compositions there. Now, with 20 times the budget of Phantasm, Coscarelli found keeping the cast and large production crew motivated even more of a challenge. In his lower budget films, everyone worked really closely together. They wanted to produce the best picture that they could, and they were always contacting each other. However, on a large production like this, a lot of the crew that was there were only there for a paycheck, and they were really not that invested in the film's overall quality. They just wanted to make sure that they did their piece. So Coscarelli found it uncomfortable having to bark orders like a drill sergeant to try to get them to do exactly what he wanted in an efficient manner. 
Pepperman, his assistant, also experienced challenges. In the lower-budget films, he could freely experiment with whatever that they wanted to do. With a crew of veteran professionals, Pepperman felt reticent to try to tell them to try things differently. So minor changes required a lot of people to get involved and to adjust their patterns to accommodate. So there were issues with prosthetics and animals that didn't perform as needed. Those were common obstacles, and because of the schedule, they couldn't afford to make everything perfectly. Coscarelli and Pepperman found the making of Beastmaster a bit of a disillusioning experience. There was a lot of creative meddling by Tabit and a lot of the people that he hired on board to keep tabs on them. Now, Tabit held the purse strings and he used those. He asserted control of the production and he rewrote even some of the dialogue on the fly, whether it was by himself or with another uncredited writer that he had hired to deliver something much more to his liking. He even threatened to fire Coscarelli and many others from the film if they weren't going to do things his way even if his way was not exactly the best way. And Tabit had a habit of using Coscarelli's office when he was on the set, and he once left a memo behind that had a list of other directors and their asking prices. Very intimidating to Coscarelli at the time. And that intimidation was so pervasive, it really got into his mind that he barely slept during his time when he was directing The Beastmaster. Coscarelli grew ill, he suffered from pneumonia for weeks, and just when it became clear that the director was indeed on his way out, John Alcott, he protested to Tabit. He threatened to walk away if Coscarelli was not at the helm of this picture. So Tabit backed off, at least until he called up his director and he brought him in. He told him that the way that he was putting action scenes together was just no good. And he was going to bring in another director to help steady the ship with the stunts and the fighting. So in anticipation of this new person to come help with those scenes, the shoot shut down entirely for a full day so that this unofficial second unit director could be brought in. And that director was stunt coordinator Charles Bale, Chuck Bale. He went into a screening room to watch all of the dailies to get up to speed. And Bale, you know, he seemed a nice enough fellow. He wanted to help out, but Coscarelli felt so humiliated by the move that the next day of shooting, he walked up to Bale and he quit. But Bale did not want this to happen. He immediately took Coscarelli aside and he encouraged him very strongly to stay on. And during that conversation, Bale asserted that he believed in Coscarelli. He was only there to help. He would stay completely out of his way if he wanted, but it was a good gig for him and it was a good gig for both of them. And feeling reassured, Coscarelli stayed on and it would actually be beneficial for Coscarelli. He learned a lot from Chuck Bale, especially on stunt work and horses. Bale brought in a lot of professional stuntmen and he made the action scenes very realistic and dramatically compelling. And the stuntmen went all out for Bale to the point where ambulances actually needed to be at the shoot because of the number of serious injuries and the remoteness of the location. You know, people were getting hurt all of the time with the incredible stunts that they were doing. Mark Singer also liked Bale coming in. He credits Bale for his understanding of how to give his role, the Dar role, the nuance necessary to keep him from being just beefcake on display. Singer had really grown frustrated by the lack of clear direction he was getting from Coscarelli because his character was not discussed with him enough to know what he should be doing from scene to scene. But that was because Coscarelli was also intimidated by Mark Singer. Singer embarrassed the director on a couple of occasions in front of the cast and crew, and he had a tendency of getting really physical about that intimidation. 
Now, after the shoot, Coscarelli began to edit his film, and that's when Silvio Tabit came by to talk to him. Now, Tabit had final cut rights, so he suggested that they should edit together all of the footage so that Tabit could make suggestions on the spot instead of Coscarelli seeing his work change later without any explanation. So Coscarelli thought this idea was very sensible, and things went actually quite fine until the final week of editing, and Tabit told Coscarelli he was no longer needed. And that's when Coscarelli absolutely blew up. In fact, he had to be staved off from a physical altercation by the cooler heads around him. He took his complaints up to with the Directors Guild and the DGA reinstated Coscarelli in the editing room, but Tabit didn't actually have to implement any of the suggestions that he made. Tabit actually received advice from other people, including a colleague, that the film seemed too fast and it needed to be paced longer. So Tabit, based on this advice, he had his editor go through the entire film again and lengthen every single shot, and that altered the pacing and timing of the film that Coscarelli had set so meticulously in the editing room. When it was all edited together, Tabit shopped around about a 20-minute reel to potential distributors, and he found a purchaser with David Bagelman. He was then president of MGM. Unfortunately, Bagelman left MGM soon after making this deal, and that left the Beastmaster's fate uncertain, with a rudderless studio unable to market it effectively. But despite the marketing problems, the Beastmaster broke about even at the box office. It debuted at number four in its first week of wide release, and it garnered about four $14 million in the United States. International money, though, would secure it as a financially successful effort in the end. But still, it was a disappointment to Coscarelli and MGM. They wanted it to be much more of a blockbuster. But that's not the end of the story, because when it hit video rentals, it found near-universal appeal, and a lot of rewatches, word of mouth caught on. Men enjoyed the action and the explosions of the film. Women enjoyed the fantasy aspects and Mark Singer's body. And kids love the animals and the goofy charm. It really was a hit with families everywhere. You know, not many touted it as a great movie, but there is definitely a comfort involved in watching it because it is just entertaining despite any flaws that you could attribute to it. Now, following the rentals, the film garnered even more popularity in television reruns over the years. Ted Turner, who owned a sizable share of MGM, and the Beastmaster would become a staple of his cable channel, TBS, where it would appear very often. HBO had many, many showings as well. It became a joke, actually, in comedy circles that HBO stood for, hey, Beastmaster's on. Billy Crystal and Dennis Miller often get credit for breaking that joke to the public. Not to be outdone, fans would also say that TBS stood for the Beastmaster station. Now, after the film's release, Coscarelli was courted by Dino De Laurentiis, the one that Tabit was trying to emulate by producing the Beastmaster, De Laurentiis called Coscarelli to come in and step in as director three months prior to the start of shooting for Conan the Barbarian sequel, Conan the Destroyer. And Coscarelli declined the offer because he felt that the script was absolutely terrible. He told De Laurentiis he would do the film if he could rewrite that script and bring along Paul Pepperman to help produce. But De Laurentiis did not receive his suggestion well, and he ended up getting mad and taking the offer off the table altogether. After this, Coscarelli sought to get back into making low-budget films again. He wanted to do the best movies that he could, and he wanted to do them his way instead of letting some producer or some studio exec butcher what he was trying to put up on the screen. And Pepperman, he would leave the filmmaking industry altogether after making The Beastmaster. Even for Coscarelli's future endeavors, he was done with the filmmaking business. And over the years, Tabit has admitted that he and Coscarelli did have strong differences, but he considers him a talented director. He would be happy to work with him again 
especially now that they are older and wiser, although it never really came to pass. Despite the fact that the Beastmaster did continue as a franchise, it was followed by Beastmaster 2 Through the Portal of Time in 1991. That was directed and co-written by Silvio Tabit, by the way. And then in 1999, there was a made-for-television flick called Beastmaster 3, The Eye of Braxis. Both films, by the way, feature Mark Singer in the title role. It was also made into a television series reboot in 1999. Coscarelli did not have any involvement in any of these sequels, so a lot of people don't quite embrace all of these, although each of these productions has its share of cult fans. Now, The Beastmaster, I think, is a campy cult classic for fantasy genre lovers and definitely highly recommended if that means you. If you're a traditional film goer, if you're not really into fantasy, you know, there's a bare bones, nonsensical story here. There's some clunky acting. A lot of that leaves much to be desired, I suppose, if you're looking for that. But if you keep an open mind, I think that there is enough of a quaintness here to the production and the intent of the film that makes it really difficult to not like, even despite its script issues and the overly lengthy runtime. So, you know, it's kind of a schlocky movie, but it's still quite appealing for being a schlocky movie. In fact, you might even like it more because of its schlock value. Enough for me to give it three stars out of four. Three stars on my scale means I do think that it is a worthwhile film for those people who like this kind of movie. If you're into action, adventure, fantasy films, I think definitely you should put this on your to-watch list if you have not seen it already. If you've seen it before, and if you're a genre fan, you've probably seen it a hundred times by now. It's one of those movies that has incredible rewatchability, which is why it was always on TBS and HBO, and people watched it over and over and over again. So The Beastmaster, definitely a fun fantasy film worth getting three stars out of four from me. Thanks so much for listening. If you have your own thoughts on The Beastmaster that you want to impart, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. That's a quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I will continue kind of in the spirit of this because I have that third film from the 1980s in which a character can communicate with animals, part of the hero. An adventure film. This one is kind of a little bit more serious than The Beastmaster and Sheena were. From 1984, I'm talking about Greystoke. Greystoke, the legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, as it was called in full at the time. Based, of course, on Tarzan, which kind of is the archetype by which all of these other films I'm talking about emulated to a large degree. So for next week, check out Greystoke from 1984 if you want to keep up with all of the movies as I review them. But until then, thank you so much for listening, for subscribing, and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. (laughs) 